Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. So Danny, we're back. This is episode 41. So we've gone through, uh, uh, what is it, two score uh, government actually episodes so far, and we're into the third score. Of, you actually, uh, you, know, you know how many years are in a score? 20, yeah. Okay, that's impressive. Is it well, because of the is it because of the, the Gettysburg Address that you know Gettysburg that? The Gettysburg Address, absolutely. Yeah, got it. Okay, just wanted yeah. to make sure. Absolutely, and so <laughs> it's a very I, I appropriate think, way of of measuring our episodes. Yeah, you know, I, for Gov actually. Since, I, I, exactly, and I think this since this is the first episode of our third score of episodes. I think it's really important we have something of consequence, and so today we have a really fantastic guest. Um, you indeed. We do. We have, um, we have, we're going to call him Chairman Heck, but I, I really, I really encourage everyone to go and check out Wikipedia for Joe Heck um, because it's, it, you would understand why I'm, I'm stammering a little bit because I don't, I don't know really how to describe this incredible public servant. Um, you could call him a congressman, a brigadier general, uh, a state senator, uh, he's also an osteopathic surgeon who happened to be a tactical physician in the local uh, uh, police department. Um, he attended the the uh, the Army War College um, as well as you know got an osteopathic surgeon's to set of degrees. I mean, he's just an impressive guy, and I think um, I think he was a, a great choice for leading the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service who has just put out a fantastic report, a, a very, very comprehensive and thoughtful report on what we need to do to encourage more people to take a stake in, in, our, in our society and our country. Um, and actually we've caught him on the, on the eve of their, of their big event uh, tomorrow, June 25th. And I'm sure he'll tell us some details of how we can follow on and, and learn and see it. Um, where they're gonna where they're gonna be talking about the report and interviewing some amazing public servants like uh, Secretary Panetta, Susan Rice, and others. But I'm I'm saying too much. We should turn it over to uh, Chairman Heck. Um, just by starting with, tell us a little bit about this report. How did you get so fortunate to uh, to to run this process? Well, first, uh, thanks to the both of you for for having me on to talk about the uh, commission's final report titled "Inspired to Serve." Uh, I'm honored to be the guest for the first episode as you enter the third score of your podcast. <laughs> the, uh, the commission was chartered by Congress in 2017. It was really the brainchild of uh, Senator Jack Reed and the late Senator John McCain uh, to evaluate how we could encourage more individuals to engage in military, national, and public service. Um, in addition, we were charged with evaluating the selective service system uh, to see what, if any, changes were necessary for the system to better support the 21st century uh, military force. And so this was the first time in our nation's history uh, where a single entity was given the opportunity or the mandate to holistically evaluate service in America, 
uh, and come back with recommendations to the president, to Congress, and to the American people on how we can, as our uh, vision statement says, have every American uh, inspired and eager to serve. And we think, you know, so much has been accomplished thanks to the American spirit of service already. Uh, but we felt that as a nation, we've not unlocked the full transformational potential of service. So the report kind of offers a bold vision of a comprehensive roadmap to strengthen all forms of service, to address critical security and domestic needs, uh, invigorate civil society, strengthen our democracy. Uh, we believe now is the time and this is the plan uh, to achieve that vision of every American inspired and eager to serve. And I'm just, you know, I was thrilled and honored to be a small uh, part of uh, an incredible group of commissioners, uh, 11 in total, uh, who all have incredible backgrounds and experiences in those various service areas uh, in a bipartisan way, I would even say in a nonpartisan way, came together uh, to issue this report as a consensus product. So what inspired it? Like you mentioned, uh, Senator Reid, Senator McCain, was there an event? Uh, a moment in time where there, where there was a reflection on the, on on something that was was a gap or broken with respect to the these types of solutions around service. Yeah. So the interesting question, uh, Danny. So the original uh, concept for the commission began in the House Armed Services Committee during the debate for the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, when an amendment was introduced that would have expanded sele selective service registration to include women. Uh, mm. It was a last minute amendment. There was not a lot of opportunity for debate or discussion. There were concerns about uh, if the amendment was adopted that it would wind up tanking the, the entire NDAA. So then Chairman Mac Thornberry uh, made the recommendation that as, as a former congressman, I can say that, that when Congress doesn't want to take action, they form a commission to come back with recommendations. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the commission was a, so an idea for a study on whether or not women should be added to selective service system was added by the House to their version of the NDAA. When the bill got over to the Senate, uh, it was there that Senators Reed and McCain said, wait, there's an opportunity to do more than just talk about women in selective service. And we all know the long history of service of John McCain to this country, who often said, and actually said up until uh, his deathbed, um, you know, that a life well lived has to have, you know, certain, a person in service to more than themselves. Uh, and so they said, wait, let's try to expand the study to look at not just military service, but national and public service. Uh, and that was the genesis of the commission. Yeah. and. Um, Go ahead, Dan. I was just going to say, it's, it's really an opportunity to kind of give away one of the big punchlines of the report, though. I know you, you came down on the side of, of um, you, you took a strong position on, on the selective service question. Do you want to give away what the report says about that? Sure. Well, you know, so the $64,000 question was, you know, should or shouldn't women be required to register for selective service? Uh, and as we traveled around the country, which we went to 22 states, 42 cities, all nine census districts, met with over you know, 500 different organizations, took public comment from more than 4,000 Americans. You know, we really wanted to pulse the American people on where they were on this question. And this was a very 
passionate debate. I would say it was the most passionate debate, uh, not just with the American people, but amongst the commissioners themselves, uh, as we attempted to wade through um, this very important question. Ultimately, uh, the commission recommends that yes, women should be required to register with the Selective Service. And we came to that conclusion primarily on uh, two overarching uh, areas. The first is, it should all be about standards. And so as we know now, only about 27% of American youth between the ages of 17 and 24, which is the prime recruiting age, will qualify for military service. Whether it's due to uh, medical conditions, behavioral health problems, prior problems with the law, um, uh, drug abuse problems. So we only can get 27% uh, that would qualify. But we also know that women qualify for military service at a statistically insignificant but still higher rate than men do. So if we are ever, uh, as a nation, in a position where we need to resort to a draft to defend this country, we felt that you could no longer exclude over 50% of the population from those who would be called in times of need. Um, so it's all about meeting the standards. Um, and so that was the first issue. And the second issue uh, was truly about uh, equality. Uh, and with the rights of citizenship come the responsibilities of defending those rights when needed. And no American should be excluded from that responsibility. Uh, so uh, we came down that, uh, yes, women should register, but what we also found just quickly, because I don't want to spend all my time talking about selective service, is that most people as we travel the country don't understand what the selective service system is. They equate selective service with the draft, which it is not. It is a totally separate governmental entity um, that is devoid of any connection to the Department of Defense. Selective service is just a registry of names and they would be uh, required to conduct a lottery to determine who would be called for service if and when a draft was enacted, which would actually take the Congress to pass a law and the president to sign it to enact a draft. So this is just really a, a, a pool of individuals. Has nothing to do with the idea that we're gonna draft America's mothers, daughters, and sisters to grab a rifle and go charge the full gap, um, right? This is about maintaining the database of individuals and what we also know from prior drafts is that over 50% of those drafted do not go into combat arms. They go into support services, logistics, transportation, admin. And so there's no automatic assumption that a female who might be drafted is going to be put into harm's way. Great I, I know we're not gonna spend the whole time on the, on the selective service, but just curious, what's the argument against women being added to the, to the selective service registry? Yeah, so um, the uh, greatest uh, argument that we heard in volume and uh, I guess quantity was that uh, women hold a special place in society as nurturers, as mothers, um, and that they should not be pulled from that important duty uh, to serve involuntarily uh, in the military service. No concerns from individuals that, hey, if a woman wants to volunteer, if there's a draft and a woman wants to volunteer to join the service during a wartime, no issues there. 
but that a woman should not be involuntarily forced to give up the role that they hold in society as the nurturer, the mother, uh, the, the family um, uh, unit. Got it. That that's, I, it's a fascinating story actually. To kind of, it's it's very interesting. Washington D.C. Right? They're they're working on the NDAA or the National Defense Authorization Act. Someone introduces an amendment, and there's like a a holy crap moment with respect to the amendment, right? And uh, and it ends in a study. It's very. Um, it's it's very interesting, and and I like that John McCain and his passion. He's a we've talked about him on the podcast many times because he's a personal hero of mine. I I actually got to meet him um, when I was in government, and I I also love that that this was kind of inspired by his his vision of a citizenry that's uh, that's giving back to the country. And I and I noted that in the YouTube video that you put together to for the report and the report itself. You, you, you spend a lot of time anchoring around the theme of John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech of, um, of his famous, uh, famous, one of the most famous presidential quotes of ask not uh, what your country can do for you. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very cool thing. Let's, should we pivot, Dan, to, uh, to government service? And because there's, there, there's a fair amount of, in this report about federal employment and federal employees. And that's something that we talk constantly about on this podcast. And, and Dan and I have this kind of fear and concern and, and commitment and passion around making sure that as a country, we don't divest in a, in a federal workforce that we invest because of how important that workforce is, whether you have a big government or a small government. How did you guys, or the commission itself, think about um, the federal workforce uh, and, and its future. Yeah, so uh, great, and we certainly know. In the report, we have 164 uh, discrete recommendations across all service lines, but we found it interesting that after the fact, when we categorized all the recommendations, that the largest single grouping of recommendations have to do with public service and the federal workforce. Uh, we were not cognizantly trying to make that the most, but obviously it was the area that we felt needed the most attention uh, because it came up uh, with the most recommendations. And, and I appreciate you referencing just quickly the John F. Kennedy quote because our report, uh, we call for a vision 2031, which we know it's gonna take a period of time to reach the goals that we lay out uh, in that report in an incremental fashion so that we fundamentally change what is now a, um, a spirit of service to a culture of service. And we picked 2031 because it's the 70th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech where he gives that most important quote, uh, which really uh, was kind of the, the, the saying on the wall that we would continue to look at as we were wading our way uh, through these very weighty issues. So back to your question specifically about the federal workforce. I mean, this is an incredible time that we find ourselves in and it was not lost on the commission that when we uh, issued our interim report in January of uh, 2019, we were in the midst of what was then the longest federal government shutdown in our nation's history. Uh, and that we, when we issued our final report this past March, we were in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic in which public service, uh, public servants across all levels of government 
were intimately involved and in many cases putting their own lives at risk to help protect the American people. So I think the good news is we have no more reports coming out. Not that there's a cause effect relationship, uh, but we want to allay people's fears that we will not be the cause of the next government shutdown or uh, pandemic. Um, so when we looked at uh, the issues and we traveled again around the country talking to uh, federal hiring managers, federal employees. We traveled to Denver, to the Denver Federal Center, uh, the highest concentration of federal government employees outside of Washington, D.C. We didn't want to just get the Beltway perspective. Uh, we had many federal employees all around the country. We heard several common refrains, uh, and that is the hiring practices don't work for today's uh, job seekers, whether it's USA Jobs, which is probably the most outmoded piece of IT within the federal government, and that's going some to say that, uh, which takes you know, 20 to 25 mouse clicks to get anywhere in the program. You've lost the millennial and Gen Z or after five clicks. Uh, so you know, how can you ask people to go into an, a, an IT platform, self-assess your, your own uh, uh, worth, like of course if you're putting in if you got to rate yourself on activities for a job, you're going to tell everybody you're the best there is, right? Well, that's how USA Jobs works. You have to self-rate uh, your your own abilities, uh, keyword searches. Um, all these things make it very difficult. Uh, we looked at benefit packages and how they compare to the private sector, right? The benefit package right now is very well designed for someone who's seeking a career in federal public service. But you know what? Uh, today's generation is not looking long-term for a 20 or 30 year retirement. They, want, they value flexibility. They wanna be able to come into the federal workforce, work three, four, five years, bounce out to the private sector, maybe come on back at a later date after they gain some more experience and skills. And so for them, a more flexible benefits package, more comparable to what's available on the private sector is necessary to get them even interested, to bait that hook, to even get them into federal service. How do we keep more of the student interns, fellows, um, that we uh, have come into the federal service? You know, the number of uh, recent graduate student interns um, from the federal government, the hiring of them post their internship fell by 90% in 2018. Wow. So we talk about, these are people that have already shown that they have an interest in federal service, uh, have already gotten some experience, and even after that, still want to get hired. Um, but yet, the way to get them hired puts too many obstacles uh, in their path. They're not going to wait 90, 120, 180 days for a job, so they go to the private sector. Um, so, I mean, I could go on. Like I said, uh, there are significant uh, changes to hiring practices, all of which we believe will make the federal government more attractive as an employer to re recruit and a better employer in the long run to retain the best and brightest. Right now, a third of the federal workforce will be eligible to retire in the next five years, and only 6% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. We have a, an impending brain drain on the way out, we have a constricted funnel on the way in, and all of a sudden we're gonna find ourselves in crisis when we don't have the required federal employees to keep a functioning government. Danny, the, uh, the other thing I loved about this report was, um, you know, in the last episode, you know, I made a shameless plug for Generation Citizen, this uh, nonprofit that I'm on the board of that provides active civics uh, training 
to uh, high school students. The report also talks about the fact that if you really want to build a culture of uh, civic participation and service, you really have to start back in, in grade school and in high school. And um, uh, Chairman Heck, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what some of the recommendations were around reigniting civics education in the, in the country and as a way to build a broader support and interest in civic and community and national service. Yeah, thanks, Dan. So, you know, again, interestingly, uh, the evaluation of the status of civic education was not part of our mandate or our charge. But as we traveled the country and talked to everyday Americans, they were the ones who brought up the lack of civic education in today's K-12 curriculum. Interesting. Uh, because uh, as we've seen school days shrink and attention put to other areas of curricula like STEM education, we've seen more traditional programs fall by the wayside. I mean, there's only so many hours in a school day. So things like, you know, voc uh, vocational tech classes, home ec classes, the social studies like civics education, art, PE, music, all those things are, are being squeezed out to focus on, you know, what the bright, shiny object is, uh, you know, of today. We felt that we need to reinvigorate civic education uh, through the K-12 curriculum and beyond. Because again, how can you ask somebody to serve a country when they have no idea about the founding principles of the very country we're asking them to serve? Yeah, I mentioned earlier, with the rights of being a citizen come the responsibilities of being a citizen. And individual students are not getting that uh, writ large. I mean, there are pockets of excellence around the country. and We've identified some of them in the report and hold them out as best practices. Um, so we encourage the reinvigoration of civic education, realizing that it doesn't, we're not talking about a one semester U.S. history class. We're talking about weaving civic education into every subject that a student is taught, which is possible and it has been done uh, so that it is a recurrent theme throughout their educational process. The second piece we talked about is service learning. Right? We know and research shows that if you get somebody to do a first service project at an earlier age in which they feel that they have received something of value back and provided something of worth to somebody else, they are hooked and they will continue to serve throughout their lifetime. So we start a service learning fund to help put uh, programs in place, perhaps in middle school, it's a one-day service project out in the community. In high school, we talk about a service of semester, a semester of service, where throughout the semester you are working on a given service project that culminates uh, with kind of a capstone event. Uh, a year of service, uh, taking what's now called the gap year, and instead of traveling through Europe and staying at youth hostel, uh, it becomes a bridge year where an individual can go out and spend a year between high school and college exploring service opportunities, which in some cases will make them better situated and informed to decide what it is they wanna do when they finally get to college uh, and not waste one or two years bouncing between majors because they're just not sure what they wanna be when they grow up. I mean, many students have, have I've done it myself going through college. Um, so, and then you look at what are the opportunities um, post-college? Is it going into the Peace Corps? Is it going into AmeriCorps? Is, do you need to take a break and go uh, start your family, your career, 
And then you want to come back into senior corps. Uh, when we traveled the country, we went to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and met with senior corps volunteers. Interestingly, almost all of the males uh, involved were prior military. Almost all of the females were prior teachers or nurses. People who served, who now in their retirement saw an opportunity to come back and serve again. So we want to create this culture of service, an expectation of service, where it's not unusual to be asked, how will you serve? That that will be the norm, not the exception. A cradle to grave service continuum that begins with civic education and provides individuals, all Americans, a clear and supported path to service uh, for as long as they want to serve. Chairman, I, I have a reflection that that there are certain inflection points in, in our country's journey that create motivating moments for youth and others to call to serve. 9-11 comes to mind. Um, I'm thinking maybe this pandemic and this time, this unusual 2020 year with all that's going on, uh, pandemic, the economy, the social unrest, that, that perhaps this is one, one of those inflection points. Do you see a, a potential connection between the report that you're going to be discussing as we go forward and linking it to, uh, to where we are today as a way of potentially seeing a, both a need and a rise in, in inspiration for service? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, it's almost serendipitous in an odd way. Uh, in fact, uh, Senator Coons has introduced legislation uh, that uh, has many of our recommendations in it uh, specifically to uh, be better able to respond to the current pandemic. The, the as you rightly pointed out, we have these inflection points throughout our nation's history where we see spikes in service. The problem becomes is that after whatever that inciting event subsides and we resort back to our status quo level of complacency, service starts to fall off. Right? So what we want to do is utilize uh, the current uh, climate, the current uh, tumultuous environment uh, as the springboard to increase service and awareness of service opportunities. But what's more important is to make sure uh, that we are able to maintain those levels and continue to grow them after the economy recovers, after we have a vaccine for COVID and it's no longer a pandemic, because we can no longer afford to do this in peaks and troughs. We need a steady state plateau growing as we do in our report to by 2031, having 1 million Americans enter into service every year. Chairman, that's, uh, that's just a, I think that's just a really incredible goal. I think it's, it's an achievable goal and your report does an, an, an excellent job kind of laying out a strategy and the, the various different pillars necessary to get there. Uh, I want to thank you for the hard work of you and, and the commission. I admire the bipartisan nature of the report and its origin. Um, not a surprise that John McCain would be attached to it. Also not a surprise, but maybe a little less flashy or well-known, uh, dedicated uh, patriot of, of an equivalent level in the form of Senator Jack Reed. Um, 
and and I just want to I want to thank you for your tremendous service as well as kind of joking a little bit but you you know a congressman state senator brigadier general a doctor a businessman a patriot and uh someone who's giving uh again through uh your chairmanship of this of this commission it's great report can you tell our listeners where to find more information about the report and can you direct them to this event that you're you're going to be having on june 25th to, to talk to national leaders about this report. Yeah, uh, thanks for the opportunity, Dan. So our website is inspire2serve.gov. That's inspire, the number two, serve.gov. Uh, and there you can find all of our documentation. There is a, the full report, which is rather lengthy, an executive summary, a legislative annex, uh, our interim report, videos that talk about uh, some of the recommendations. So it's really a one-stop shop for everything that we've done. So I'd invite your listeners to visit that website. Uh, in addition, as you mentioned, we are holding uh, now what we're calling our culminating event, uh, June 25th, uh, information on how to, uh, uh, it's a virtual event. Uh, we already have in excess of, uh, I believe, 400 uh, registrants that will be participating, uh, but encourage your listeners, again, at the website, inspire2serve.gov. Uh, they can get more information on how to register to participate in that event as well. As you mentioned, uh, we have some really incredible public servants that will be participating. Former Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta, National Security Advisor Susan Rice will be uh, participating in fireside chats regarding service in America. We have two uh, panels uh, that will talk about the culture of service in America and then one, uh, the next one, um, the way forward for service in America based on the recommendations uh, contained within the report. Uh, so we encourage uh, your listeners uh, to tune in uh, to that virtual town hall as well. Thanks a lot, Chairman. Fantastic. And, and looking forward to, to seeing that event and, and, and seeing this report uh, gain momentum and, and us move towards a successful completion and realization of those ambitious goals. Thank you so much. Danny, we're going to take a break. Uh, and then we'll come back. We'll discuss uh, this segment, uh, our our guest and the report and, and other topics. Sounds great. Gov Actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. Gov Actually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, Danny, we're back. Um, we needed to take a bit of a break. That's a little longer than our normal half, so we're going to have a shorter half, so not technically a half. But you Wait, you're not going to do that. this in Gettysburg Address? I think I expect all mathematic metrics now to be linked in exactly. That and Roman numerals, because Roman numerals <laughs> work great on podcasts and radio, don't they? Yeah, uh, yes, um, they do. So I was wondering when we were talking to former Congressman Heck, uh, I noticed that he was a congressman from 2011 to 2017. I was wondering if there's any footage on, on C-SPAN archives of him yelling at you or me in a hearing. Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I never, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I was just so excited about this report and the bipartisan nature of it. Well, I and know. The, and 
and looking at his Wikipedia page, he's like voted as like the most nonpartisan member of Congress. So he probably wasn't one of the people yelling at him. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. And and that's a shame that he's no longer in Congress. Exactly. Uh, but uh, uh, for that reason, but um, uh, but no, I I think the uh, the the thing about the report and you know this is I I don't know if they necessarily mind us mentioning this. I mean this was one of the few guests that we've actually been chased to have on GovActually. I mean- It's very exciting. It's, it's a turning point for us. It really is. I mean, in that wait, sense- Wait, wait, Dan, so you're not many... supposed to admit this. Billy, you're gonna have to cut this. Where all of our guests chase us, Dan. Exactly, exactly. To get on. To get on and talk to all 12 of our listeners. Um, I but, hate when you uh, do that. You know it's I at know least 26 I listeners. I know, yeah. that's why I keep doing it, to just make you mad. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, I though you know dove into the report, and it's not a short report. You know, it's not you know, and they do a lot with fact sheets and videos to kind of tighten it up. But they they pulled zero punches. I, it's I very good. Said to yeah. you guys, I'm not sure how this report ever got issued. <laughs> no, it's it's. I read it, um, and it's my kind. It's like it's it's fascinating. It's issues that, and I love the story, and it. I just think it's fascinating, given where we are today in our world, right. that there's this debate around women serving in the military. And to me, I would have thought that it's a no-brainer to add them, to, that I would have thought they were yeah. already added to the selective service. I mean, it's just, right. it's, it's a really interesting thing that, that that's required like town hall meetings all around the country when I would have thought it, it seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, there's some there's some interesting questions about whether there should be a selective service at all. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fascinating that the selective service isn't actually related to military service, which which is intriguing that if we actually were to move towards some kind of national service requirement, then the mechanism is there. Um, I, I, I think it was interesting that the report does speak about military service and the need to continue to develop support and interest in military service, but that's not the majority of the report. The majority of the report dives into a broader sense of public civic um, service obligation and opportunity. And, uh, and, and then even the idea of civics education so that people would understand why that has value and why that isn't something that some other person has to do. Yeah. I th and you and I have talked about this. What, what excites me about a report like this is it centers the question more appropriately than sometimes the question ends up, right? Like, like there's always like this question around like customer satisfaction with the government is low 20% and, you know, um, and, it, and it misses the question of, of what happens if we don't have the right investments and tools and training in place. I mean, you and I spent what I, a very emotional podcast the last time talking right. about loss in the public's trust and, and pivoted to a conversation about training, which requires investment and requires, you know, making sure that, that public servants have you know, the right set of, of, of the right environment by which to succeed and, and meet their mission. And that, and that doesn't happen on autopilot. 
it happens with a with with a lot of of of, of attention and 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 care and feeding, um, and this report really kind of establishes questions around: Are do we have the right uh, environment by which to cultivate a government that can flourish in its mission and succeed its mission and earn public trust, versus uh, questions about you know shrinking government because it's too bureaucratic and you know government employees shouldn't make more than their private sector counterparts or those types of, of debates yeah if you're if you're looking for another book to read um there's a great book uh uh called are we rome um uh by um uh cullen murphy and uh one of the things that he talks about as as one of the threats to our longer term uh, societal infrastructure is this connection between this the civil culture and the military uh, culture and they actually they actually take on that issue in this report this idea of a civil military divide and our four parents were were thoughtful about this and, and making sure that there was civilian control of the military, but also this idea that the military was comprised of people who were brought in from every aspect of our society. And that has begun to kind of break down over time. Um, and, and I think it's a very, very interesting concern. It's not just the military though, it's public service in general. And, yeah. and are there, are there two societies? Is there the society that serves um, in the public realm and the society who doesn't? And that's, that's very concerning. Imagine if we were in this COVID-19 crisis and there had been a few years of a million people a year signing up for some kind of service. Imagine how, how easily we would have been able to stand up contact tracers or, or start testing operations or, or even you know spread better information around. I, I, I think it's a very interesting set of questions. And that, to your point, maybe it takes a, a crisis like a pandemic to wake us up to some of the incremental changes that have been accreted over time that have taken us in a direction that might not be the one we wanted to head. Yeah. And I think there's some creative ideas that can, can manifest out of a report like this. Like the idea around a senior service, which he touched on, and, you know, I've been thinking about the fact, I brought a couple of pieces of information together, like, you know, we're as a, we're as a society getting older as Americans, like our, you know, the notion of retiring when you're 55, you know, you got 30 or 40 years of retirement to fund based on, you know, to retire when they're 55, Danny. Well, you know, I'm saying it's like, or 65, 65, All right, right 65. Yeah. You know, and, um, but, but some people, you know, sure. if you're in the federal government and you put your sure. 30 years in and you start at 25, you can retire at 55. Teachers, cops, there yep. are the people that are retiring in their 50s, but that's a lot of, of life left in today's day and age. Um, and I, I saw, I don't know if you saw this, it was a while back, but I saw that Reince Priebus, after he left his position as chief of staff, enlisted in the military and a special program for older people who can enlist in the military. And I was like, that's fascinating. I was really interested in this. So I 
dug, I tried to do some research on it, and it looks like a relatively small, narrow program that that Reince was able to use some connections to get to get into, I guess. And it's like maybe there should be a bigger program Absolutely. around yeah. this. Yeah. You know? Why would that um, be? Why would that be a small? Uh, if people wanted to do that, and if they could bring expertise, you know, there is the AmeriCorps. There is Vista. There, even the right. Peace Corps has a senior uh, volunteer, but all of them are, are very small programs and are very limited in part because of limitations on appropriation. You know, the fact that they don't want to fund those programs. Um, I, I think these are the kind of programs that, you know, on a dollar for dollar and a pound for pound basis are probably returning massive multiples. You know, the ROIs on these programs are, are probably huge. The question is, can you get the kind of visibility into, into, making that kind of um, investment. Yeah, well, I think this, these are really, you know, I, I hope this report gets, gets a lot of attention and catalyzes some really interesting discussions around public service and service in general. Because again, going back to the interview, I really do think we're at an inflection point. I don't know how not to look at the first six months of 2020 right. as an inflection point. I think the world is changing dramatically around us uh, in ways that are going to be very difficult to predict. And I look at people like Anthony Fauci and others, government, long-term career government employees that, um, that people look to and rely on to steward us through this crisis. Um, and it, it's a reminder of how important it is that, that we have the right people with the right training and the right talent thinking through some of these issues uh, because the government does steward us through these, these issues. And I don't know about you, it feels like there's maybe I, from the time, you know, I think you and I grew up in the same time frame, the 80s. It just feels like there's more crises now than there were years ago i don't know you can disagree with me but it's just a yeah, feeling no, I, I think I, I think i think we maybe grew up in a in a period of relative calm that was right after a period of pretty serious storm and yeah. now we're going into another period of storm um i i also think though to your earlier point you can't you can't see the protests in response to the murder of george floyd and 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 not think about the fact that our our government needs to change and be changed to be fairer, more equitable, and more responsive to the needs of all citizens. Well, one of the ways to do that is to engage more people in its, in its operations, in its management, in, its, in that change. And we need to create more opportunities and more avenues for people to gain access to being able to make that change. And so something that I think would be very appealing to your deeply you know, geekiest member of the Gov Actually listenership in this report would be the recommendations they have for changing the way people are hired into the federal government, the way the federal government hires and manages its people. It's really interesting and exciting stuff, really thinking about government service, not as a exclusively as a career, but it's something that everyone should be eligible to do and have access to do and, and maybe does at some point in their life. Yeah, I, 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 I think there's a lot of people who think about the federal hiring process, not just our geekiest listeners, because right. it's, the, 
it, it's such a critical thing in terms of, it, and to me, it's more, it's the mechanism, it's how we recruit, it's how we pay, it's how we market. Yeah. I the meant the specifics of it. They weighed, they weighed, I mean, I was impressed. They, you know, they, they weighed deep. Um, yeah. And it's great. It's the kind of stuff that we've talked about in the past that needs to have happen. So, All right. Well, uh, thank you, Dan. You coordinated that interview. I think it was really, really informative and important and timely. So all, all good. Well, thanks for your, uh, thanks for your great questions. And Billy, thanks for uh, making it all happen. You're, you're, you're this quiet source of uh, just tremendous technical merit and skill. So thank you. He's not going to say anything. Yeah, he's he got a crying look. baby in the background, so he doesn't want to take it off. That's a good point. He's muting yeah. us, right? Yeah. Good. It's uh, best for everyone, really. All right, Danny. All uh, right. Until, until, Stay safe. Uh, Stay healthy. Episode 42 coming up. It's going to have to be a, a really Jackie Robinson part. episode. The Jackie well, Robinson episode. I was thinking more along the lines of the meaning of life, the universe, and everything. Well, I don't get it. Uh, well, there there are people who are listening to this podcast who got that joke, so we'll just okay. leave it at that. Episode forty-two okay. next time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Gov Actually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at Gov Actually Pod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.